Hello and welcome to Digfin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like and let YouTube know all about it. My guest today is Jack Momose, founder of Dejika, a Japan-based gaming company that's turned into a payments platform called Komuju. I spoke with Jack about trends in finance, banking, fintech, gaming, and all with a Japanese twist. Jack Momose from Dejika, welcome to Digfin Vox. Hello, nice to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So um, I was interested to have you on the show because we spend our time talking to a lot of people in fintech uh, around the region. Uh, and I haven't yet interviewed anybody with a business based in Japan, uh, big market. There's been some big M&A activity as well over the past 12 months. So maybe introduce us to what's going on in Japan with payments. Thanks, James. Um, yeah, we've been in Japan for a long time and it's never really received so much of the uh, attention from you know players from outside of Japan. I think recently you've, everyone's heard of the PayPal acquisition of a company called Payd, which is a domestically uh, created uh, buy now pay later uh, payment method. Um, and I think there's a whole bunch of Google recently acquired another fintech in Japan as well. I think traditionally there's two elements. There's one that in Japan, domestic players are looking outside of Japan as much as they could. Uh, but the actual technology deck themselves uh, that they're running on has not been upgraded. So although they see what's actually happening globally, uh, domestically, these uh, traditional players haven't been able to upgrade their services per se. And then at the same time... When you say that, Jack, are we talking about like the fintech players or are we also talking about the, the banks um, or, or other, you know... Uh, all of them. So, so finance, uh, financial services related, either being payments, banking, uh, treasury services, all of that. Especially in, you know, we're in in payments, so we look at the players that we compete with, and we from time to time see still very, very old traditional, you know, tech stack that were built 10, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and. That was one space. So you have a lot of domestic players traditionally have been dominating the market that um, haven't really gone out and have a lot of innovation to sort of keep up. And then uh, traditionally also from Japan's point of view, looking from outside into Japan, it's a pretty tight, closed market. Mm -hmm. Unless you understand Japanese, unless you understand who the players are. And even then a lot of the rules that, that you know, internationally, we uh, come to have common uh, understanding with, don't always apply in Japan because the rules and the laws are, you know, written yeah. differently. Um, so from that point of view, there's been not a lot of activities, but domestically, Japan as a market is huge. As you all know, there's 120 million people living there, always very uh, high degree of uh, disposable income. E-commerce is, is blossoming. Logistic services, uh, overnight delivery is anywhere in Japan. Um, so those elements combined made Japan a very attractive marketplace. Um, and now with uh, new players coming in and, and uh, a lot of the domestic players, so talk about PD a little bit, I believe that they are very uh, bilingual. So okay. that sense alone opens up a lot of transparency uh, for somebody who's trying to come into Japan. 
uh, and I, I believe that's one of the the sort of the kickoff that you're seeing uh, happening in Japan. And I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about other companies, but how how often do you find uh, companies in fintech that are able to operate on a cross border manner, whether it's culturally or just in terms of their operational setup? Um, you'll see a lot of uh, guys like banking companies like Revolut, Transferwise, were trying to come into Japan, and you know inevitably they have to be you know engaging in compliances and with legal. Uh, regulations and so on. We find that as soon as they get clear, you know, through you know good uh, amount of domestic help, uh, probably through regulation side, uh, they become quickly they can operate. But still, they're not able to operate, you know, with all um, restrictions off, gloves off, so to speak. So in Europe, they can operate in certain ways, but when it comes to Japan, then somehow they're capped. For example, like some transfer services is only capped to up to 1 million yen, which is only about $10,000 in transfer amount. So in that sense, you know, you can kind of look at it, uh, if, is it, if it, is it a regulation issue or is it a uh, protectionism issue domestically right. in Japan? And uh, you see that with uh, auto automobile industries as well. Uh, and I think I believe in fintech and banking, uh, it's something that the Japanese government is very well aware of and, and want to put some uh, restrictions around that. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about some of the difficulties of operating in Japan as an outsider. Uh, but at the same time, what's the innovation scene like? I I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but I remember in uh, doing business trips in uh, the late 1990s or early 2000s to Japan and people on the on the subway all had smartphones and i had never seen anything like it i was amazed by the the capabilities of the phones people had but nobody outside of japan even seemed to know about this stuff uh and then the, the apple came up with the iphone in 2007 and you know the rest is this history and iphone's a huge seller in japan as well uh and they sort of lost uh that what could have been um a, a massive export uh but i guess their corporations were not we're not thinking that way. Um, so are there some interesting stories in fintech and payments that are indigenous to Japan that the rest of the world is missing? Um, yeah, so uh, we can kind of use the, the recent payday story to talk about it a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Traditionally, buy now, pay later isn't something that is uh, in Japan. Like they associate it with being a loan. Um, you borrow money and you pay it later and that usually give a, a pretty difficult connotation around it there's other buy now pay later players in japan um but they've been you know you basically a very intrusive checkout flow where you're about to do the buy now pay later with the other ones and you have to sign this big pledge and you know give blood to your <laughs> firstborn all of that just so you can finish the transaction payd was really the first player that actually came along and and you know shortened that cycle um so that as you're checking out, you only, I think all you really need is a, is a phone number for them to verify you and then off you go. Um, those are the kind of innovations that we're starting to see, not the traditional way of doing um, uh, a checkout flow or a payment or, or a business per se, but coming from you know, more uh, client or end user centric uh, mm -hmm. point of view, you're starting to see a more and more of that coming through. And those innovations are being driven by a lot of startups. Uh, and they're good. Startups are always good. But, you know, when it comes to big volumes of business, it's still a lot of being controlled by a lot of um, traditional uh, 
conglomerates, if you will, bigger, bigger companies. Yeah, the, the Keiretsu families. Um, yep. What, uh, what is the environment, just on that point, what's the environment right now for startups and for entrepreneurs in Japan? Um, I mean, I, when I talk to some people in the venture capital world, you know, they do invest in Japan. There's, there's quite a lot going on in, in certain sectors. Gaming's a big one. Um, and you have a gaming background. We'll get into that. But, um, uh, but in general, when you're looking at the fintech scene, uh, you know, how, how vibrant is that startup ecosystem now? It's um, not easy, to be honest, because of the regulations, the way that they're made. Um, when I, earlier, when I talked about it being, you know, maybe slightly somewhere in the protectionism uh, space, Japan has always been, um, they have a lot of laws and they have law firms that help them write laws <laughs> so they get the, the officials get elected. And it's all uh, predicated upon a, a premise of protecting the consumers. So <clears throat> that's a very big thing in Japan. So a lot of the fintechs, especially the neo banks, come like, we could do this, transfer your money, there and that. It's great. It's all a really, really good idea. But at the end of the day, if someone screws up, who's going to hold the bag? And that's where a lot of the regulation stuff will come in. Um, and what we find is some of these fintechs will come uh, around uh, in Japan in startups, unless they're very well backed or they're very well, uh, you know, with uh, right advice on, on getting regulated, regulatory approvals and so on. Um, they can't, and a lot of time, a lot of them actually won't get through the regulatory approval. And so you have a lot of good ideas that people are building, um, but, you know, actually making it to market, uh, to the market, you, you end up with a, quite a few of, of only a few that actually make it out. And even after they make it out, you know, as a society, uh, consumers uh, are more wary of all things. So to tell somebody that, don't put your banks in Mitsui Sumitomo Bank, but don't put it this bank called something that we've never heard of. And especially if it's run from overseas or, you know, they will check you out and then you don't get that credibility. It becomes pretty hard. Right. Okay. Um Let's talk a little bit about Dejica, uh, and then we can get into the, the payments. Of it. But you are um, you're you're not a fintech to start with. Um, you're the the gaming and I guess the, broadly speaking e-commerce. So just give us a little bit of background. What was the how, how did you get your start and um, a, and how did you get into becoming a a gaming company? Um, so thanks, Jim. I I I was a banker actually a long, long time ago before I came to Japan, I was a banker in Canada for five years. I worked for the Bank of Montreal. Um, I always wanted to get into, you know, FinTech or payments and banking, that, that side of the industry, I find it uh, is something that I, you know, quickly understand, but I'm also a gamer. I play video games all my life. And, and so when I started my business, uh, when we started Digica, one of the first things to do as a business, we wanted to create cash flow. And the best way to create cash flow than to sell something digital. So one of the first businesses that we engaged in as, as a company was publishing and selling of video games mm -hmm. uh, on the internet. So we figured out quickly how to sell things online, how to figure out uh, how to facilitate downloads and so on. And, and that led us to working with uh, Valve, a company out of Seattle who operates a game platform called Steam fairly, fairly quickly. And then once we got there, we understand how Steam works. And we figured this was a very, very good platform and that it ought to come to Japan. And it was from there that we uh, you know, had held many meetings with Valve and, and explained to them that payment is really the way to help them uh, bring some, something like a Steam, which is a PC gaming platform, to Japan. 
Um, the initial thought was, of course, from them would be like, well, it's a console country, you got PlayStation, you got, you know, Nintendo, it's all here. Like, well, what are you talking about for PC gaming? It's a very minor market for them in that sense. But we realized that um, there's a few ways that we can engage in, in introducing to domestic Japanese payments that we've figured out ourselves that it will change uh, consumers' perception on Steam. So the minute that they realize that they, although the entire uh, UI is still English-based or slightly foreign, not, not quite Japanese-looking, and maybe not too many people have heard of Steam in Japan at the time, um, realizing that they can pay uh, at a convenience store like 7-Eleven or Family Mart with cash, and they're going to get this game, uh, you know that brought up a lot of confidence uh, in the consumers. And what happens with that is, as soon as the consumers are coming in, they're buying, and then Steam is going to see all of a sudden more purchases are coming, are coming in from Japan. And that, of course, trickles down to the publishers and the game developers and studios themselves. And then they're going to see, oh, uh, there's revenues coming out of Japan. They want to get their Japanese product or Japanese versions uh, of their games uh, better and more ready. And you know, then it's a uh, then it's no longer a catch-22. It's it's a collaborative, you know, more revenue, more investment, more investment, revenue, more revenue. Um, that was the, sort of the first stage, and then the second stage, we also wanted uh, Steam to be a valid uh, game distribution platform for Japan, for Japanese studios to sell in Japan. So we call it J on J, uh, and if we could do that, then more Japanese game studios are going to use Steam in Japan to sell in Japan, and that'll further increase uh, Japanese uh, user count. Um, so you're so using you, payments you, as a tool not only to bring Steam into Japan, but then also to kickstart uh, an environment in which uh, a local gaming industry was going on PC for local gamers using right. your your infrastructure, your your payments plumbing. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of you know it's not us. We're just kind of like you know. You, this is, I don't know there's a word to describe it. You know, like in, in some of the mangas or cartoons, you've seen like a giant rock and then there's like a tiny rock that holds it in place. And then the coyote was running over and somehow you just, you pulled the little rock away and the thing kind of moves away. I kind of feel that that's what we did. Uh, so, so just really having that little Konbini connection on Steam kickstarted the whole thing. Um, today, guys like uh, Square Enix or uh, Capcom all see PC gaming as a very important uh, channel. And Japan uh, distribution on in Japan is all done on Steam. Yeah. Okay. You talked about convenience stores, people being able to pay with cash. So we're not really talking about e-commerce at this stage. Um, is there is that still the model that is preferred in Japan, or are you also making this something where people can use a credit card or some other or a wallet of some sort to pay for these things digitally? Absolutely. Yeah. Credit cards, wallets, lots of different payment methods. Uh, convenient, the Konbini or the convenience store payment is really just one of them. Mm -hmm. It's really, uh, I mean, from a, a pure payment method point of view, uh, as, a, as a, you know, merchant or as a, uh, a PSP, it's not the most efficient payment method. You create an order, then it's a pending order, then somebody actually has to go and pay cash, and then that's how you complete the order. There's always a chance that the guy is going to pay. There's always a chance that, uh, and so on. But it does a couple of things that are, I believe, are important. Um, one, it associates very clearly from a consumer's mindset. There's a convenience store network, and then there's the product they're about to buy. It gives confidence to, in that sense to the product, uh, to, the, the, to the whole buying process regardless whether or not the end user actually choose that payment method. Um, right. 
it, it does that. And the other one is, you know, in time, sometimes in, in, especially if the products are being sold to younger generations that don't have credit cards, it's not so easy to get wallets. Mm-hmm. Komini store payment is a really easy one. You just say yes, and you just go and pay your 2000 yen there. Yeah. And I guess also, you know, Japan is such an urbanized society uh, and uh, anyone, you know, foreigners such as myself have been there, we probably realize that there's a, a Kambini or, you know, a Lawson's or a 7-Eleven or one of these brands like everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're, they're absolutely ubiquitous on the street. Every street has one. So it's not really a huge ask um, from, from that perspective. Um, not at all, no. What, what is the, um, what's the evolution then? How did you, let's talk about from Dejika to Komoju. Thank you. So Dejika was a sort of all-in-one, all the businesses that we put together were all just in this one thing. Then um, we quickly realized um, as our payment business is growing, um, in 2016, we actually officially launched our payments deck to payment services and it's called Komoju. So the company is still called Dejika. Komoju is the name of the payment platform and the name of the service that we operate. Mm-hmm. A little bit like Valve and Steam, so to speak. Um, we realized that when we launched Komoju payments, um, the first customer we launched it on was on Steam. And there was only a handful of other companies, but nobody as big or scale as, as Steam at the time. Uh, and we continued to improve our uh, service and our uh, platform. In 2016, uh, we launched with uh, Shopify. So as Shopify was trying to come into Japan to become a uh, payment you know, e-commerce platform to, you know, it's another one of the really, really advanced e-commerce system coming into Japan, which is full of players that are very archaic and uh, with uh, dated uh, technology service uh, offers. Shopify needed something to kind of kickstart that. And again, we did that as well. Um, so being able to help merchants come sign up on Shopify and being able to sell in Japan using, and of course, if they're going to sell in Japan, they're going to need uh, Japanese payments. Um, being able to complete that whole loop for Shopify uh, and merchants that are coming in on Shopify was a really important step. And so that helped us upgrade our entire uh, operations as a payment company. So from uh, sign up for onboarding of merchants, payouts to reconciliations, to adding more payment methods and so on. And of course, as volume grow, we can lower our prices. So our merchants can now sign up with us uh, at a much, much lower price than they would with our competitors. Um, today, uh, merchants can sign up and within five minutes of submitting, the, submitting their documents, uh, their payments are ready to go. Yeah. What's the size of the business now? Can you give us some stats in terms of the, the volumes that you process and, and also just, you know, the, the health of the business right now? Um, I can't t- say exactly, but I could say, that, you know, year over year, we're at about 40% growth. And last year, I think we're close to about a billion dollars in transaction volume. Do you, um, are you a VC backed company, privately owned? Uh, what's, the, what's the structure for you guys? Uh, we are 100% bootstrapped, so there's mm-hmm. no VC. It's all right. domestic, uh, internal. Only the myself and a handful of Digica employees uh, hold the shares. Okay, that's that's great. And uh, what 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 will be the next leap for you? Um, I know we we've talked in the past about some international work that you're you're working on now, um, but you know, are you going to need external capital or can you you keep this um, with you and your other partners the whole way? Um, the next step for us is, uh, so we've actually silently launched global payments. So today as you sign up on Komoju, 
uh, it's on komoji.com. If you sign up, as you finish your, your sign up process, there's a place where you could get to select the number of payments or the payment methods that you want. And we have all the global payments available there, not just Japanese ones, but Korean ones, European ones, uh, South American ones, all of those. And you just have to check off and you can, you can get through that. That's, I believe, would put us in the right place where we become, uh, you know, being a company based in Japan, but still providing global payment services to all merchants, not just in Japan, but globally. That's our goal. Um, in the next phase, um, we are likely going to look at fundraise for a couple of reasons, not because we need uh, money, we've been profitable um, year over year, but I think it's important to raise the, the general standard and the, the, the so our, the bar, so to speak, that we want to measure our, get ourselves against. That's the reputational one. thing. Uh, That's more right. Mm. It raises that. And the second thing is, as we, uh, I think we were one of the first companies in Japan to uh, to be able to do what uh, payouts on T plus seven. So we're T plus seven today with no, a lot of companies in Japan will do that, but they'll charge you a fee for it. We have no fees. It's, uh, you know, our standard payout is T plus seven. We want to move that to T plus one. So that is our uh, the next, uh, uh, you know, internal uh, operational goal. Right. So T plus one just means your transaction finished today, you get your money tomorrow. Yeah. Why is it T plus seven strikes me for a domestic system as kind of slow? Um, am I right about that? Or uh, no, no, no. Traditionally in Japan, you have, uh, so you close at the end of the month. So mm -hmm. let's say we're in February. So your entire February sales is closed at the end of February and you get your money end of March. Okay. So it's going to be up to T plus 60 at, uh, at some point. Okay. Yeah. And how does that compare to internationally as you're doing business in places like Europe or other parts of Asia? Yeah, so other parts of Asia, I think T plus seven is, is pretty good. In Japan, T plus seven is pretty fast. That means we close this week and you get your money at the end of, at the end of next week. Um, in Europe, no, Europe is at T plus one. And I think in the US, depending on states, depending on the service, sometimes they're T plus seven, I think is, is somewhere there. But T plus one, I believe is, is, is important. Uh, as long as we have our, our operations, so, you know, AML checks and, and fraudulence and all that checks and balances operationally in place, uh, go to T plus one, it's better for the merchants, it's better for us. Uh, and that's what we plan to do. Yeah. What are some of the big trends that you're writing? So, for example, buy now, pay later, we, you know, you referenced that earlier. That's obviously a hot trend in, in payments. What's, uh, what, what's your take on that? Is that something that in the Japanese context is... Uh, is as interesting as it is in other markets or is there something else that, that drives the trends? Um, I don't believe, to be honest, uh, buy now, pay later. If you just say to a Japanese consumer, say, hey, buy now, pay later, the first reaction would be like, you know, no, <laughs> you know, what's in it, what's the trap, you know, what's the, you know. Um, so I don't believe that it's, it has the same uh, connotation as somewhere like, you know, in other countries. I think in um, Japan, buy now, pay later, as long as it's framed around convenience mm -hmm. um, and then framed around a few, I think, I think it's, you know, it'll be well, well received as long as consumers know that they're, they're not going to get screwed for 20% interest rate or, you know, Yakuza come knocking on the doors three months later and so on. So that's a really important part to how to position the buy now, pay later. Um, 
the the other thing is for a lot of the new players coming out on buy now pay later it's it's around you know uh built it if you built it they will come so if you built it the merchants will come well they don't always come so they, again merchants you know depending on the, what that arrangement looks like between the the buy now pay later provider and the merchants and of course the fees uh that'll dramatically dramatically change how the the services get rolled out okay as you expand internationally not just from japan to other markets but also you know other market to other market business so no no not necessarily with a japanese client at all um what what are going to be one or two challenges and and you know what do you need to do to to, to reach that um i think reputationally is one so you know today if we look at our people that we're, we're trying to catch guys like uh stripe so if you're a company based in latin america and you want to do payments in in europe and if Stripe's available, you're not going to hesitate whether or not this company is American or not. We need to get ourselves there. And that's from the level of our products, the level of our, of our services. Uh, all of that needs to get upgraded. And of course, the reputational um, you know, challenge that we have to, to, to go after, try and get, you know, get big and famous <laughs> in one, some way. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And um, la last, I want to ask you, you have a background that combines uh, gaming, uh, payments technology. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot uh, about um, tokenization, um, NFTs, crypto. What's your take? As you know, you're you're doing bread and butter payments. Is this something that's going to seep into your world, uh, or is that uh, is that a, a different universe? Um, I believe they're very different. I think uh, NFTs, there's a lot of hypes, you know, NFTs, somebody somehow had a digital image and it sold for $6 million. You hear sensational stories like that. Um, I, I don't believe that it's, I don't believe it's going to go away. I think that the, the technology itself, being able to uniquely identify a particular digital asset and say, hey, this is always traced down to through blockchain and all, that's great. That's indexing. And that happens before. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not that actually, you know, your regular Joes like you and I can actually benefit from something like that, uh, I think it will take some time. And I think if we are going to benefit benefit from it, uh, unless you and I have come up with this most viral image that we painted on Tuesday morning, um, we're going to benefit it from the implement implementations of these technologies, and not so much as the sensational story like the guy just this picture of the dog that I just posted and it's three million dollars. Um, because of that, and, and why do we, uh, you know, my just my guess, but uh, sometimes you see a lot of these 3 million images are sold out and, and all of that. You know, there's probably a lot of risks associated with that, those particular transactions, you know, either be where's the source of fun, why does somebody want to pay $6 million for this particular image, and what if someone else has a claim to the, over this image. So I think that, that industry itself has a lot of time. Uh, it needs it needs a lot of time to kind of sort itself out and, until it's safe enough for for you know regular Joes like you and I. Um, so we're going to take a uh, sort of a watch and and learn uh, approach to this and and not have anyone go hey you want to accept Bitcoin tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, that that game's been played a while. Yes, and from the gaming point of view, we hear a lot about whether it's metaverse or or virtual worlds, uh, whatever uh, names you want to put on these things. Uh, but certainly a lot of a lot of financial institutions are looking at gamification, um, you know, Robinhood brokerage or whatever it might be. Uh, 
as somebody coming from the gaming world, uh, what about that excites you and what about that gives you pause? Um, I think of the one thing, gaming, the most important, important part about gaming is uh, how fun is it to play that game? That's the most important part. The game itself is not fun, but it's full of all this, you know, ways to, you know, play and, and earn money or pay money. Um, then it's a lot of like, a lot like the old uh, games on, on, you know, the Japanese flip phones. You know, all you do is just click, and hopefully you get, you win something. That's I not fun. Something. Yeah, yeah. So those are not fun. And so I think in the gaming uh, perspective, we want to first of all like look at the game itself. Is it fun? Do people want to play this? Are they actually having fun, or are they always triggered and really, really mad after they're done? Um, that's kind of how we see it. I, I think the payment piece when it comes to gaming industry per se, the game industry per se, it, we, our job, we have one job, just lower that buying friction. I don't want to be stopping in the middle of my game, running out of bullets and I have to run out and get some bullets and come back. Uh, just, as, just as an example. So game is game. Payment is the one to assist in that transaction in some way or another, but it's not the one that should be dominating any sort of the gaming uh, piece. Right. Okay. So gaming is for, it's an enjoyment. Uh, That's right. And the payment, uh, in your view, should be the, the service provider that enables the gaming, not the other way around. That's right. That's okay. right. Great. Jack Momase, thank you so much for joining us on Digifin. Uh, appreciate learning about Japan and payments and your business and good luck with it. Thank you very much.